you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see those of you who are here with us in person. Want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Um, Want to just uh, reiterate how grateful we are to have this time together uh, to be able to sing songs and worship, to be able to dive into God's word and to see what he has for each and every one of us this morning. Now, um, last week we started a series called Once Upon a Marriage, and that was about when two remains two, Samson and Delilah, when they weren't united to one another, nor were they united um, with God in the relationship with him. And so that was just kind of recognizing the difficulty that takes place when there's marriages that are like that. Now, I started last week talking about this idea that whether you are happily married unhappily married, happily single, unhappily single, wherever you are, there are biblical lessons that we can learn from marriages in the Bible. And so we're taking just a few weeks to take a look at those. And I was getting ready for my sermon uh, this week, and I typically go to Panera um, and and study for a couple hours on Monday morning just to kind of focus and, and kind of get um, locked in. Usually I listen to my headphones and listen to music, uh, but this past week I was just um, working and I noticed uh, someone talking to someone else, and so I just was, uh, didn't put my headphones in, I was just working and was wearing a, a Pomerado Christian Church sweatshirt that says you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. And so, so two people were talking, and then eventually uh, the guy noticed the sweatshirt, hey, I like your sweatshirt. And I'm like, well, thank you. And I just, you know, fixed my hair, and it was great. Um, <laughs> But we started talking, and so he was sharing a little bit about his faith journey um, and how he loves the Lord, and he just starts sharing, and, and I asked him if I could share this real quick. I didn't say names, but I just want to communicate. I mentioned ahead of time, because if you guys remember, I talked about um, just that, that mug I got a couple months ago that was like a little bit of warning would help if you're going to share the sermon story. So I asked him, I was like, hey, are you okay if I share this? Because here's what he talked about. He said that he had been married for 20 years. Um, he talked about how... Uh, they originally from San Diego ended up moving during the pandemic. They moved back east and he still has a business out here. So he will fly out and work about two or three weeks at a time, get as many different jobs that he has uh, doing power washing. And then he'll fly back to North Carolina while he's out here in North Carolina. His wife is homeschooling their kids and he just shares like, you know, I don't I don't know what happened, but. Over time, it just seems like we've been separated for the past several months, and I don't even know when it happened. It just, there started to be this this separation. There started to just be these living our different lives, and we started to just not be as close anymore and try to communicate, and communication wouldn't work, and and we tried to maybe go to the pastors of our church to connect with or or to counselors, but for whatever reason, there just becomes this, this divide between us. There's been this wedge that has driven between us, and, and it's like kind of at this point where He's like, I don't know if I'm going to need to figure out lawyers. I don't know if I'm going to need to figure out what this looks like because she says she doesn't, we, they don't want to be together anymore. And it's one of those where I'm listening um, and asking a few questions. And while he's talking, um, I start opening up my laptop, not because I'm rude, uh, because I said, I'll say, I'm going to read something to you. Let me know if this sounds like what you're talking about. 
I open up my tab that I'm studying for this sermon for this morning, and I read a few of the quotations. He's like, that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what it was. And it was this idea of creeping separateness, this idea of what happens when two people who love the Lord become one in marriage, and then over time, whether consciously or subconsciously, whether intentionally or unintentionally, there starts to become a wedge that drives between them, something that slowly, and if we're not careful, surely will separate them. So we're talking today about this idea of not when two becomes one, how it's designed, but what happens when oneness, when one becomes two. There's a visual I saw, this video uh, that I saw this past week that I think illustrates this pretty well. Uh, there's no sound to it, so let's go ahead and start playing that video. Um, and as you can see, this guy is standing on this huge boulder, and he's got this, these sledgehammers, and he has already driven in these different chisels that are throughout the rock. Now, you'll notice that as he does this for a few seconds, then he's going to stop in just a second here, and he's going to start listening. He's like, is there, okay, no, he keeps going. He's figuring out where he needs to go. He gives it one more hit, and then he's like, okay, it's about to split. I'm going to jump. Then he comes back down, and he gives it three more hits. Two, and then three. And you see the rock just completely split. Now, if you notice in that, the, what, what did he use? He didn't use a jackhammer because they didn't, you know, this has been a masonry. This sort of thing has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so what does he use? He uses not, not exactly this. This is more of a, a nail or a spike. But he uses a chisel and he just knows the grain of the rock, figures it out, and he starts putting these chisels that are even smaller than this one, and he puts them, places them very specific locations, and then he just keeps hammering at them and keeps going at them in order to make sure that it eventually will start to split. And so he just knows enough to go hammering down. If you hear, he listens, he figures out where's the fault line, where's this, okay, this one needs some does some more over here, and then he keeps doing it until he keeps going, then he hears that the rock is about to split. He jumps off and gives it one, two, three more hits, and what once was literally rock solid is completely separated into two. Not because of something, just because of the huge things that happen, but because sometimes things that seem small but are placed in just difficult parts in our marriage, whether it's difficult seasons, difficult areas of pain or woundedness. Small things hit repeatedly can divide what was once rock solid and can completely separate what once was meant to be one. This morning, we're going to talk about this idea of Isaac and Rebecca, the marriage of the patriarchs, Genesis 24 through 20. Eight, but we're going to focus on 27 for the majority of our time this morning. And I want to, before we go into the text, if you're with us for any length of time, you know we like to pray before we dive in. I especially want to take some moments now to pray, recognizing that in a room this size and people joining us online, that some of us are in a place where we, we're, we're married, but we've started to hear some of the cracks in our marriage. We start to hear the different ways that the enemy is just going at our lives. The creeping separateness that some of us, we're in a place where maybe we are, the, the fault line is about to crack. Some of us were in a place where we're starting to hear it and we wonder if there's time to fix it. 
Some of us are looking back and thinking upon the different ways that we've experienced this brokenness. And so wherever we are in this, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to meet us here because this is a heavy topic. And again, some of us aren't married here. And so think about with different relationships and even more importantly, a relationship with God, how there are small things over time that the enemy loves to hammer in and attack that creates a separation. And so will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what can be a hard topic, but hopefully we address hard things with God's truth and it can encourage us to navigate the hard things together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later. And Lord, as we talk about marriage, as we talk about when one becomes two, when we talk about this brokenness that can take place and separateness over time, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal to us the gaps in our own relationships. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us the the creeping separateness in our relationship with you? Holy Spirit, would you comfort and guide and nurture us in this time? And may we learn these valuable lessons about how to avoid um, one becoming two in the separation, um, Lord. So may you speak in a personal, powerful, impact way to each and every one of us. May I decrease and may you increase. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in primarily in Genesis chapter 27. So you could turn your Bibles there, whether it's the Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you, seat racks in front of you, whether you brought your own, whether it's the Bible app, whether you're joining us online, you can click the Bible tab. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. We're going to jump around a little bit in Isaac and Rebecca's story, but we're going to land and spend our time in the text of Genesis 27. With that said, I mentioned this last week that we are looking at a book called Famous Lovers in the Bible. It's um, by Doug and B.J. Jensen, former church attendees here, just incredible couple for the Lord. Um, we still have copies available if you weren't here last week or you didn't grab one last week, but you would like that as a free gift. We're not going chapter by chapter, but we're hitting on some of the things that they're talking about, and it would be a great resource either for a small group or for couples to do together. So encourage you to, take, uh, to grab that on your way out at the welcome table. But here's what I want to land on as one of our main points today, is that creeping separateness, and I'm going to define that in a moment, but creeping separateness can turn fairy tales into tragedies. We, we think if you looked at every couple that got married and eventually got divorced, but if you were to look at their wedding photos, my guess is the vast majority of them looked pretty happy. The vast majority of them thought, okay, this is it. We're so grateful. I'm so excited. The joy would radiate from their faces. And yet something happens over time that there are small things that can drive wedges that are just properly placed in a relationship that the enemy loves to just be able to slam and to hit and to divide. Here's how Dr. Steve Stevens describes creeping separateness. He says, over the years, I've also observed creeping separateness. A couple marries and becomes one. At first, there's good communication, togetherness, romance, and all the other essentials that make a successful marriage. Eventually, time erodes their commitment. It starts slowly. He does his thing and she does hers. He even says that can be healthy, but you still need to come back and connect and to hear about one another's lives. And he says this, in time, there's more separateness than togetherness. It's the same idea of when you go to the beach And if you are, uh, you know, when our kids, when they go to the beach and they're in the water, they start right in front of our towel or where we're sitting 
on the beach. And then all of a sudden, just the tide can just pull them. And so they're playing and they're fine. But then if you look back and all of a sudden you're like, wait, where's, where, where's mom and dad? Or where's the towel? It's just that there's a creeping separation or a creeping drift that can take place that then we kind of lose sight of where we are. And so this creeping separateness takes place. We, d- we define this a little bit further on here. Let's go to the next slide. The killer of love is creeping separateness. It's taking love for granted, especially after marriage. It's ceasing to do things together, and it's finding separate interests. Plus, it's we turning into I. It's when two become one. The failure of love, of love might seem to be caused by hate or boredom or unfaithfulness, but those were results First came the creeping separateness, the failure behind the failure. And we can start to sense this when you're in a relationship. And again, we're looking at it through the, the lens of marriage. But in any relationship, you can start to sense when there's no longer that togetherness. You start to sense that there's something that's wedging between the two of you. And so it's acknowledging, okay, in marriage, if we are committing to this marriage, And we feel the creeping separateness take place. We have the choice to either continue to live our separate lives and continue to allow that drift to take us apart from one another or to do the hard work of sharing and listening, of listening without judging and sharing openly without without deception. And maybe that's something that happens within the two uh, members of a couple. Maybe it's something that can happen with pastoral counseling or with a biblical Christian counseling, uh, people who can be uh, family therapists that know the Christian foundation and can speak into that. Maybe it's something you need professional help. Maybe it's something you can do together. But when we start to just go through our daily lives and we start to hear the division taking place, what do we do? Do we just allow that wedge to get deeper and deeper and deeper until things split? Or do we stop and acknowledge that there are some things that we need to change? So we're using this verbiage of of fairy tales. The first, how does every fairy tale start? Once upon a time. Once upon a time. We see in Genesis chapter 24 this beautiful, long narrative. It's, it's actually one of the longest chapters uh, in the, the Torah, in the, in the first five books of the New Testament, one of the longest chapters in Genesis, in which it's the story of Abraham talking to his servant, and he says, I do not want my son Isaac, as he, he's, Abraham's like, I'm about to die, I'm getting older, I do not want my son Isaac to marry some of the, 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 um, someone who's from the local area that would not have a relationship with the Lord, And so he sends his servant hundreds of miles to where his family was from before to look for a wife for his son, Isaac. Now, when when he goes there, when the servant goes there, it's this beautiful prayer of, Lord, would you give me success today so that I can find Isaac a a wife? And he says, "If, if the person, when I go to the well... May the woman who says, offers me a drink and offers to fill up the trough for the camels, may this be the one that you have for Isaac. And so he brings 10 camels. It shows Abraham's wealth. He travels all these miles. He gets to the area, the well he's supposed to, and, and out comes Rebecca. And she's someone that goes and she says, let me, let me give you a drink of water and goes to the well and fills it. And then she says, let me give you enough water for your camels. 
I don't know the exact number, but camels can drink a lot. Ten camels will drink a lot, a lot. And yet she says, I'm going to do this. So she serves. She's, she's generous. She's hospitable. She's doing the right thing. The servant breaks down and he's like, whose family are you from? And she shares that she's a relative of Abraham's. And so he's just so grateful. The Lord has granted me success. He goes and gives her like a ring in her nose and he goes and gives her bracelets. They go to the family and the family is arranging the marriage. And she says, yes, I'll go with him. They ride back for those hundreds of miles. And then he, she sees Isaac. Isaac's out in the field. And as they approach, she says, who's that man that's out there? He's like, that's, that's Isaac. And so she covers herself. She veils herself, which is tradition. She goes to meet him. And then we see here in verse 67 how this section ends. Says, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's this beautiful fairy tale of how God worked in just such a beautiful, incredible way that out of all these miles of journey, the right woman at the right time showed up with the right request and the right heart with, from the right family and came back with the right desire to honor God. And all of a sudden, Isaac loved her and Rebecca came and it feels like, oh, this is, this is what marriage is. These are the happy photos we see. These are the happy wedding photos we see. And yet it doesn't stay that way. Here's how Doug and B.J. Jensen consider it. So when Isaac and Rebecca met, she was polite and proper. He was obedient and respectful. Isaac married Rebecca because of his father's wishes, and he lovingly cared for her. These two famous lovers brought some impressive qualities to their marriage. But, unfortunately, those excellent qualities, as well as their love for each other, diminished, and they didn't live happily ever after. It doesn't matter how beautiful the whirlwind of the courting period takes place. We see this in every iteration of The Bachelor or The Golden Bachelor or Bachelorette or whatever they are, all the different ones when it's like the, the amazing, we're in this tropical place and I love this person and I love 12 more people at the same time apparently. It's just, and it's the motion. We're like, oh, everything's amazing. And then it's like, but does she chew too loud? Right? When they eat, is it like, does he always just leave his laundry on the floor? Do they never help it? Like, once the once upon a time fades, is there a happily ever after if we don't put the work into it? So, once upon a time, we see Isaac and Rebecca's story starts beautifully. We see God's hand in it, they see God's hand in it. And yet, they experience something that, this creeping separateness that, to use another uh, terminology from fairy tales, is a tale as old as time. They woo one another. We love one another. Things are great right away. And then, and then real life hits. Whether it's busyness, whether it's child rearing, whether it's knowing how to, how to navigate finances, whether it's workplaces and just being consumed with how much needs to be done, and all of a sudden, the two that have become one are slowly but surely becoming one who become two. And it's not obvious, but it happens over time that we start to see this divisions create. So let's ask a couple questions here. Let's ask one question first. What can contribute to creeping separateness? Let's look at the text from uh, Rebecca and Isaac in Genesis chapter 27. And let's look at the very first thing we talk about is one thing that contributes to this. This is the thing when I do premarital counseling, this is 
topic number one, and if I do six sessions or four sessions, this at least takes two sessions because of the value and importance of it. Because it's poor communication. One of my favorite quotations, I've shared it before, is the greatest misconception about communication is that it's happening. That we think we're talking, we're on the same page, and yet... We're like, well, I heard this. Well, I didn't say that. I said this. Well, I heard it. And then we start to just have this divide. When my parents, uh, when my mom talked to me when I was already grown up, but when they were talk- she was talking to me about my parents' divorce, she just said we, we didn't have good communication. We-, we weren't able to communicate. And my dad reiterated a similar thing, that it was, they wanted to communicate, but it was, just, it was hard. Poor communication can wreak havoc on a marriage. Genesis 27, 1 through 7. Let's start the story here because here's what's happening. We, yeah, Isaac and Rebecca, they have kids. They're, they're childless for about 20 years. Isaac prays that she would get pregnant. She gets pregnant. We're going to learn a little bit about her birth in a few moments. But then all of a sudden, we start to see I, uh, Esau, who's the older son, and Jacob. And they don't get along. There's separation there. There's brokenness there. Um, and what ends up, we look at is that before this, Esau is a very, um, he's like Samson from last week. He's a very sensual man. And what I mean is he's all about his senses. So he's famished one day. And Jacob says, well, give me your birthright and I'll give you soup. And he's like, well, I'm about to die. I'm so hungry. What does my birthright do me any good? So here, take the birthright. And he gives up his birthright as the firstborn for a cup of soup. He's all about the moment, not about the bigger picture, and disregards the calling that God has, much like Samson. Now, now we jump into this part of the story here. So I'm actually going to read the last two verses of Genesis 26 for context, and then we'll jump into verses 1 through 7. So Genesis 26, 34 says this, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Why? Because like Abraham didn't want a... Th- foreign wife for his son, Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah don't want women in, his, in um, Jacob and Esau's life that would take them away from the Lord, that they would start to follow those practices and, idol, and those idols and those religions. So this is a source of grief. Then 27 verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, one commentator notices that when Abraham thought he was about to die, he wanted to solidify a solid marriage for Isaac. When Isaac is about to die, he wants a good meal, which I get but it's the priorities, right? Continuing on, verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. We're going to stop there for a moment because at first we're just thinking, okay, what, like, how, what does this have to do with poor communication? It just sounds like she overheard something and acted upon it. And that's true, but it's taking away an important part of Rebecca's story with the Lord and shares how she did not communicate with him, with, with, um, excuse me, with Isaac, something the Lord had said to her. 
after Isaac had prayed that she would get pregnant, her, her pregnancy was very difficult. And it, t- it felt like there, were, like, a lot, a lot, there was a lot of pain and a lot of strife in the pregnancy. Here's what Genesis 25 talks about in verse 22 and 23. She was having twins. This is who would be Esau and Jacob. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, this is important because normally in, pre, in a culture of primogeniture, primogeniture is a fancy way of saying priority of the firstborn, that the firstborn would get double the, what the other children would get. Like he would get the double portion and then it would be broken down. And so when God is telling Rebecca that she, her pregnancy, there's twins, they're going to fight, nations, there's going to be a separation. And she's here specifically the Lord saying that the older will serve the younger. This is a big deal for her to communicate to her husband. This would be a huge deal because Esau is born first, and then he has an arm that is like red like hair, and, and then Jacob is born. It's like just this, this, even during the birth, there's a wrestling there. And what ends up happening is that we hear all the way now in, in Genesis 27, when now Isaac is old, he's like, I'm going to bless you, Esau. And we have no evidence that Rebecca ever told ever told Isaac these words. Because Isaac was someone that he, he feared the Lord. If he knew that Jacob was meant to be the one to oversee Esau, what are the chances he would disregard what God would have said or did say? In fact, we see a little bit of evidence of this miscommunication because in Hebrews eleven twenty, we see how the author of Hebrews says that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in faith. And we start to think, wait, how does that work? But Isaac would not have been um, honored for his faith in blessing the two sons if he was knowingly breaking what God had said to do. And so here's the dynamic. Rebecca knew in her heart that her secondborn son was going to be the one that would rule, the one that would be the, the, the one that would, the other one would serve. And we never see her talk about it with Isaac. To be honest, I read the, the section again. We honestly don't see a lot of times that Isaac and Rebecca are talking to each other in general. There are a few, but it's not a lot. We see this dynamic here. This quotation unpacks this. Uh, this is from uh, Richard Strauss. He says this, This would have been the perfect time for Rebecca to flee to God in prayer for divine wisdom. Instead of fleeing to Jacob to cause him to deceive, to flee to God in prayer. And then go in and tactfully share with Isaac the promise God had made to her shortly before the twins were born. If ever there was a time to talk it over, this was it. Had she reasoned with him lovingly on the basis of God's word to her, she certainly could have secured for Jacob the blessing God wanted him to have. But instead of prayer and reason, she chose treachery and deceit. Warren Wearsby continues, he says, However, it's tragic when a husband and wife, once so dedicated to the Lord and each other, have excommunicated each other and no longer discuss God's word or pray together. That once was two, because a poor communication slowly separates. It creepingly separates from two to become, or from one to become two. 
Second thing that we see here in this passage, I'm going to have to go quickly through here. Uh, the second one is the idea of favoritism. We see that both of them have a favorite son. Here's how we see this starting in verse 8. Just a few verses, but it unpacks it a bit. Genesis 27, verse 8. Rebecca says to Jacob, Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. We see whether it's because of the, the word of the Lord during the pregnancy, but she favors Jacob. If you think that's, how do you read that from that? Here's what the text says in just a couple of chapters earlier. It talks about how the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, he was known for wanting food, right? Loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That when the marriage starts to separate, it can happen that then the, the spouses will choose to favor one of the kids. Maybe it's the one who is more like them. Maybe it's the one who will stay and listen. Maybe it's the one who, will, who has seen the different dynamics and it's just this, this difficulty that takes place. Richard Strauss puts it this way. As often happens when a husband and wife have a poor relationship with each other, Isaac and Rebecca each latched on to one of the children in a substitute relationship in order to fill the emptiness in their souls. Friends, favoritism amongst kids is so dangerous. It hurts even the one that is supposed to be the favored one. It hurts them because it creates an unhealthy dynamic. It creates this, this idea that, well, I'm the favored one here, but that's because I know I'm despised by the other one. Well, I'm the favored one here, and that's because I'm despised by the other one. So both kids, in this case, live with the knowledge of favoritism and being despised. Rather than both being loved, and not that one's the favorite and one's the despised one, they're both loved by their parents. But when creeping separateness takes place within the marriage, and then all of a sudden one is becoming two, they're still looking for someone in the family unit in order to be able to feel emotionally connected with. So as so often happens, Isaac chooses Esau. He's the favorite son. Rebecca chooses Jacob. He's the favorite son. And the favoritism is something that happened in the previous generation. We see that Abraham with Ishmael and Isaac, he was following what the Lord said about Isaac being the chosen one, but he stepped out of bounds to have Ishmael. So it's like there's this, there's this separation that happens among siblings. Then we see it with Jacob's own kids. We see the same dynamic as well. Favoritism with Joseph and how that wreaks havoc for decades. So we start to see that some of these things that happen is poor communication, favoritism, and then the third one that we see here is deception. That because of this creeping uh, separateness, deception comes and it only creates a deeper wedge between them. It's another thing that just keeps hitting over and over because once lying takes place and replaces truth, and trust is lost, it's really, really hard to stop the separation from happening. Genesis chapter 27, verses 11 through 17 say this. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. 
What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Jacob is naturally inclined to say, I don't want to deceive my dad. What if I get caught? It's not even, mom, it's wrong. It's what if I get caught? None of us have ever asked that question, so it's okay. We'll just keep going on. Verse 12. Oh, no, sorry, verse 13. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. Think about the degree of deception Rebecca goes through. And think about how she is modeling deception for her son. She says, it's okay to deceive as long as you get what you want. She's justifying, and she potentially is justifying the sinfulness of deception by saying, well, this is what God meant to happen. But instead of talking to Isaac about what God had called to happen to draw them closer to one another... She goes off and she teaches her son the depths and the intricacies and the intentionality of deception. So all of a sudden, he's learning. Mom says it's okay to lie. Mom's showing me how to lie. I wonder if we take to the lessons that we learn from our parents, both good and bad. So if, she's, if he's learning that firsthand, like, the fact that she had this plan so quickly discovered and decided. It's not in the text, but is it possible to think she's planned this out before? I know that I can get these, these skins. It's going to make the hair, or his arms feel hairy. I'm going to get close so he smells like Esau. I'm going to make sure that I'm going to cook this. I mean, all of these things she goes through for deception. And the impact that that has for creeping separateness. We'll continue on here. It says, concealing one's true thoughts and feelings can actually be a form of deception. And then here's the point for this one. And deception had become a way of life for Isaac and Rebekah. Now it was about to come into full bloom. It would be wise for us to notice this carefully. For this is the kind of thing that a lack of communication can eventually lead to. Remember we talked about poor communication in the beginning. And favoritism and, and then deception and how... Deception is, is a byproduct of that poor communication from the start. Because if we don't communicate the truth in love, then we'll be willing to deceive so that we can get what we want. So this tale is old as time, this creeping separateness that we may have experienced in our own marriage and relationships, we've seen maybe within our parents or grandparents or friends or others around us. It's a tale as old as time, and, and it ends not so happily ever after. It's not that everything just ties up in a perfect bow right away. Real consequences, or excuse me, real decisions and real separation have real consequences. There's a brokenness that takes place. And it's in the not so happily ever after. So what are some of the results? We talked about what are the, some of the contributing factors to creeping separateness. What are the results that we see part of, not all of them, right? The three I mentioned aren't the only factors, and these three aren't the only results, but they are some that we can take for our lesson this morning. The first one, as we all know, 
When you have to fall into deception and lying, it always leads to more deception and lying. The webs we have to keep in order to lie, in order to keep the lie alive, dig us deeper. And they cause more pain. Verse 18 through 23. So she sends him to Jacob to, with a food to Isaac. Jacob went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Deception from the mom has led to deception from the son. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success. Now he's lying using God's name. Oh, the Lord, the Lord blessed me with this. Every sentence is digger deep, digging deeper into the deception. Every sentence is the byproduct of the deception over time going deeper and deeper and deeper. And continue on. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Everything about Jacob, his sight, well, what he looked like, even though Isaac couldn't see well, the feel, the touch, the hairy arms, the smell of the clothes of Esau, they all led to deception. The voice almost gave him away. But he said, I'm, I'm Esau. The Lord blessed me. He comes closer, and he gives him the food. Deception breeds more deception. The only way to stop the deception uh, chisel from dividing the, the marriage or the relationship is to speak truth. Deception hides and covers up. Truth hurts, but it reveals and heals up. More deception takes place. What's the next thing that we see take place here? Another result of this creeping separateness is not just more deception. We've hit on this a little bit, it's, but it's generational sin patterns. It's the sin that we don't teach our kids, maybe as explicitly as Rebecca taught Jacob how to deceive, but it's the sin patterns that our kids catch from us. As Craig Rochelle has said in another context, but the verbiage remains apt, we, there's things that we are taught and there are things that we've caught. Jacob catches and is taught the ability and the intricacies of deception and then slides right into that with more deception. But there are other things that we start to see that, um, that people can catch from their parents if we're not careful and if the Lord doesn't redeem that. Verse 24, are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. He's full bore into the deception. He's all about it. There's no backing out now. He's committed to this lie. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. Something that was meant to be so beautiful and meant to be this beautiful moment between Esau and his dad is something that Jacob has come in and taken, that Rebekah has taught him how to deceive. And we see these generational sin patterns, and Isaac is in the middle of it because Abraham, we saw ahead of it, was someone that 
There was lying that took place. When Abraham said that his wife Sarah was just his sister, there was a lie there. That there was favoritism amongst the kids. That there was division within the family. Abraham had that. Abraham wasn't perfect. None of us were perfect. But Abraham passes down, either consciously or subconsciously, that it's okay to lie. That it's okay to, you know, get out of trouble if you need to lie. Also finds out that there's favoritism amongst the sons. So Isaac embodies that. He's a product of that generational sin pattern. And then he is a continuing passing on of it. So then there's he, or Isaac loves Esau and Rebekah loves Jacob. And then we see it continue on in Jacob's life where now, as we mentioned earlier, Jacob has a favorite son, Joseph. And it creates massive havoc between the others. That They've seen that his sons have seen that they lie. Oh, yeah, no, he was killed by a wild animal. Joseph was. It's generation after generation after generation. Then Exodus, God talks about how he, he punishes sins to a third or fourth generation. We see that patterns of sins continue on, and yet his everlasting love goes to a thousand generations of those who are obedient to his commands. And so instead of us thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be stuck in these three to four generations, it's saying, how can I live into the new life in Christ? How can I live into what it means to not have one becoming two, but two remaining one? What does it look like for me to be able to obey God in all my ways? And in so doing, what does it look like to break sinful patterns? Now, maybe in you, in your life, you know that there have been addictions that are in your family history, and you want to be the one to break that pattern. Maybe there's other types of, of, whether it's addictions or infidelity or financial ruin or whatever it is, and we see this is just how it's been. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe it's favoritism. And we say, I don't want to continue to pass that on to my kids. I want it to stop by the power of the Holy Spirit. And through the grace of God, I want it to stop with me. And we start to see the power of what can take place when God can work and do the hard work in our lives to break those patterns. Lastly, instead of more deception, instead of generational sin patterns, or excuse me, not instead of, in addition to, the last one is estrangement. I won't read the whole passage, but we see here that Ab- um, Jacob gets the blessing. Esau comes right afterwards and says, here I am, I came to you. says the same words and Isaac starts shaking violently because he said, who did I bless then? And he said, Jacob stole my blessing. Isn't that like him? He's one who grasps the heel, who deceives. That's what his name means. And so he's like, of course, that's what he did. And so Esau's like, bless me, bless something. And there was a very little else that Isaac could bless. And then we start to see that Esau wants to kill Jacob. Rebecca overhears that as well. And then sends Jacob off to Paddan Aram in order to um, find a spouse that would, again, be someone from within the family so that there'd be a faith consistency there. And so that's where eventually, we're not going to hit the story now, that's eventually where he would meet Leah and Rachel. And so Rebecca was like, I'm going to protect my son. I'm going to give him the blessing. And then she ended up never seeing him again. There was estrangement between the brothers, estrangement between the spouses, estrangement between them and God, estrangement all around. Doug and B.J. Jensen 
put it succinctly here. All too often, a consequence of poor communication, withholding information, favoritism, and deception is estrangement. Because once each one of those things keep hitting over and over and over, what once was rock solid, with small wedges expertly placed by our enemy and repeatedly hit by our enemy, can create separation. That's why it says what, what God has brought together, let no man, let no one tear asunder. And yet it happens all the time. So if creeping separateness can turn fairy tales into tragedies, then we ought to be encouraged and we ought to be challenged to remember that intentional togetherness can restore and sustain a rock-solid marriage. It's turning back towards one another. It's when we feel that drift to get out of the water, if we feel like we're, we're drifting because of the tide of our lives and the busyness and everything going on, it's getting out of the tide and the busyness and getting out and reconnecting and saying, now I'm reestablishing this connection. It's sharing about what's going on in our lives rather than hiding it. It's about speaking the truth in love rather than deception. It's, a it's about navigating really difficult things. But making a marriage work is really difficult, but it's not as difficult as the pain and difficulty of divorce. Let's go to the next quotation here. It says, Doug and B.J. Jensen say, it's easy to get sidetracked from the marital relationship while raising children, doing work projects, hobbies, ministries, or other passionate interests. All can be valid pursuits depending on the amount of time spent. We learned that when we say yes to a good thing, we might be saying no to a great thing, like the intimacy in our marriage. When we finally realized these worthy activities robbed us of valuable relationship building time, we decided to purposefully schedule time together. It's intentionally setting aside times for dates. It's intentionally setting aside time for being without kids and just investing in the relationship that the Lord has given us our kids, maybe for a couple decades in our home, but the Lord has also called us, if we're married, to stay together beyond, before kids, during kids, and after kids. It's, it's the idea of the most important human relationship we will have is our spouse. That's why we say it's important to pray about that and, and about who that is much early and often. But we ought not choose our kids over our spouse. We ought not choose our hobbies or our friendships. There could be balance, yes. But in the end, are you connecting back together? And this is a heavy statistic as well, but I think it's an important one, a vital one for our close of our service today. Because I know that there can be people in our lives um, that are on the brink of allowing that final now, they hear the rock separating, and they are hitting the last couple uh, chisels, and a, the separation is about to take place. And here's a quotation that Jane Lampman quotes Roger, uh, Richard Land of the Southern Baptist Convention, points to University of Chicago study involving people who had described their marriage as unhappy or very unhappy. Of those who divorced, only 19% were happily remarried five years later. Of those who stayed in the marriage more than 70% said they were now happily or very happily married. 
Friends, this is incredibly hard. This is an incredibly painful dynamic. And, and I don't mean to take 40 minutes and be like, well, now everything's fine. Because a problem that takes more than 40 minutes to create is going to take more than 40 minutes to solve. But the truth of the matter is this, is that if we can start to see and sense the ways that creeping separateness have come into our marriage, it's the time to hear and it's time to stop. It's a time to reconnect with one another. It's a time to go see a Christian counselor to get the help that is needed, whether individually, as couples, both. It's time to be able to value the marriage and to not say and to not allow the enemy to get his way. That if the marriage is what God says, that this is the mystical union of a husband and wife, I'm talking about Christ and the church, how Christ is to love the church, lay down his life. If that's what marriage is supposed to reveal, is the love of Christ for his people, then how important is it, is it for us? As far as it's up to us, as much as we can do, in order to say this is a relationship I'm going to work on. This is a relationship I'm going to get help with. Because I want my kids or future grandkids or friends or neighbors or coworkers or others around to say, yeah, marriage is hard. Marriage can be tough. Creeping separateness can turn fairy tales into tragedies. And yet, we also know that intentional togetherness, both with one another and with us and God, can restore and can solidify a rock-solid marriage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are, and I pray for everyone who's part of our service today, recognizing the weight of this topic and the pain that is part of it. Lord, I pray in the ways that, Holy Spirit, the ways that I share something and it might have been received in a way I didn't intend. The biggest misconception is that it's about communication, is that it's happening. Holy Spirit, would you soften those edges? Would you clarify? Would you Speak in a way that only you can to everyone who's part of our service today. And Lord, we thank you for the love that you have for us and help us to follow you always. Whether we're married or not, help us to drive or be driven to draw close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.